Welcome to The Pathless Path. I'm Paul Millard, and in this podcast, we examine the invisible scripts that run our lives and dare to imagine new stories for work and life. Today, I am really excited to be talking with my good friend, Alex Hardy. I am going to explore his journey from prestige chasing overachiever like myself (laughs) to wandering underemployed vagabond. Um, Alex has not shared a ton of his story, but I think he's super interesting because he's one of the people that I think does a better job uh, than many people of making friends through the internet, despite not sharing a ton of content. And I think there's really interesting uh, things to explore there. Um, you've also explored Buddhism. You've uh, just taken a sabbatical. You've had an exit from a startup. So many things to explore. Welcome to the Pathless Path, Alex. Thank you, Paul. I mean, that's the best hype man job I think anyone's ever done for me. So thank you. Question I start with on all my podcasts is what are the stories and scripts you grew up with as a kid that told you, as an adult, these are the things I'm supposed to do to be a good person in the world? The one that comes to mind is anything worthwhile requires suffering. That was one that was really, really engraved in just the culture that I grew up in. Um, I went to a very competitive high school. Even the middle school was competitive. Everyone was uh, trying to get into the most prestigious college, maximize the number of extracurricular activities, get the best grades. And that was really drilled into me, kind of like hard work and striving and um, achievement from a very, very young age. And um, that kind of achievement was put on a pedestal and the kind of buy-in price that you paid for that was to outwork other people and to tolerate uh, a lot of um, unpleasant times in order to, to achieve that. It seems like you internalized that though pretty young. I mean, talking with you, it wasn't as much your parents kind of forcing that onto you. Yeah, yeah. Uh, my parents, thank you in advance for, for that mea culpa. Um, yes, it was definitely not my parents. It was really almost like the water that um, that we were swimming in, honestly, in in my hometown and just in that, um, yeah, in, in that space. It was really like uh, mimetic almost that everyone else, all the other kids were kind of doing it. And so you couldn't help but just get wrapped up in it. And it carried through to college as well with prestigious jobs there and graduate school. And it was really, I kind of very much uh, fell into these, uh, into wanting to play and win these games that I was basically, you know, flung into. What was the goal? Like when you're in middle school, feeling these things? Did did you have a sense of what people were aiming at or why anyone was so caught up in the doing? You know, it was, ne- we never really, and I never really stopped to ask the question, like, why or what for? It was really only like, you know, you would get some type of, um, you would get lauded in some way or kind of like shown upon in some way if you got such and such a GPA or got 
this many extracurricular activities or got into an Ivy League school or things like that. It was this thing that kind of everyone was talking about all the time. And that was always the ultimate goal. It was like a very finite game, if you will. But um, it was always very clear along the way, like, oh, if you're, you know, a worthy person, you'll end up doing this. And so you kind of wanted to go after that at, at any cost. Did you have role models? Hmm. I think that there were like, I guess, kids, you know, that were able to, kids in years ahead of me that were able to like, you know, balance, um, you know, doing athletics, but also achieving a lot academically. I think those were kind of the people I looked up, I looked up to. My sister was able to do that. She was, you know, captain of like the soccer team, but also went to Berkeley and was like very studious and kind of the like jock, the jock nerd hybrid, I would say, was kind of like the, the, um, the aspirational model. You were pretty good at this game too. I, I was a little too good, you might say. What do you mean? Why, what does too good mean? Um, I think that, <laughs> that I was able to win a lot of, the, to, to win these games. And I was able to be like singularly, maniacally focused, ruthlessly focused almost on um, winning. Like if you put an objective in front of me, I will basically stop at nothing to achieve it. It's just kind of how my brain is wired and I did everything in my power to win these games. And along the way, I would kind of, once I reached the top or achieved it, I would uh, kind of wonder why I even had done it to begin with, like question whether the cost of um, admission was was worth like this ultimate, this goal. So you, you would question winning after winning even younger? Mm. I think that I regularly got a taste that um, success wasn't really as sweet as I had I had thought it, it was going to be. Yeah, even in, even in middle school, high school. Is there a scenario that stands out? <sighs> um. You know, I, I don't know. I mean, one of the jumps to mind was like when I got into, when I got into college, I went to Duke um, and I worked, obviously worked very, very hard to um, get the grades and um, all the credentials and stuff. And, and I just remember like getting accepted early admission felt really great for like two days and then it like, and then it kind of faded. And that was maybe the first like real taste where I was like, huh, this is, this this thing that I had really, really put a lot of time, sweat, tears, et cetera, into. And it felt good. And other people were like congratulating me on it. Um, and, and there was some status associated with it. But the feeling, that feeling wearing off was definitely something that, um, that stuck with me. It's not really something you can talk about mm. in open too, right? If you say, is it really worth like, this chase, people will be like, what are you talking about? You got into Duke. Yeah. Right? Yeah, it's, yeah, you almost, um, it's tough to, I mean, I am worried that I would come across as ungrateful or yeah. something if I, if I, if I dared to question it. Yeah, my, I run into this a lot when I talk with like my mother and I'll say, I just feel like that wasn't worth it, <laughs> right? Mm -hmm. How can you say that? You have all these experiences, you did all these things, all of that is leading to this. And it's like, we're so conditioned to 
like even people who are saying, I went there, I achieved the success and it's not worth it. People will not trust that Mm. or they'll like push it down and they'll still just go after it despite people saying that. Yeah. I mean, in my defense, I suppose, or in defense of that all along the way, I had people that told me, you know, there is no, you'll never arrive You'll ne- there'll yeah. never be a certain dollar in your bank account or career achievement or anything that will be ultimately fulfilling. And yet, as I think back, even if I could have told my younger self that, yeah. I probably wouldn't have believed that. I would have said, you know, you, you need to go. Like, I, I, I am a person that learned, for better or for worse, I learned through direct experience. And I need to really, like, do the thing myself to have trust to, to evaluate whether it's worth it or not. Yeah. Who is telling you it's like, it's about the journey, not arriving. Mm. I think that, I don't know that, it, that a specific person comes to mind, but there was definitely, I don't know. There was just this like kind of wisdom, you know, in, in the air of, of, of older people that I had kind of looked up to, some people even that had like left, you know, either left finance or left the law or left. It, it was usually coming from someone who had had like some career experience and then kind of wisened up that was, that was kind of like, you know, looking upon me and, and uh, sharing that wisdom. <laughs> I, I ask because I feel like I didn't have those people. Yeah. Like everyone around me was like, just nobody wanted to hear questioning. Mm. I remember being in my one of my first internships and being like, what is everyone doing? <laughs> you should be grateful you have an internship. <laughs> this is the goal. Like the goal is to make a lot of money, right? Mm-hmm. Um, when was the first time like you became just absorbed with like achieving one of these goals? Do you remember it like took you over? This was kind of what happened with me with strategy consulting. Mm. Wondering if a similar thing happened with you with uh, Wall Street. Yeah, a couple of times come to mind for when I first got absorbed. First one was definitely law school. Um, law school is really a fascinating game because it's like the ultimate game. It's the to ultimate break game. Into. <laughs> it is. It's the, it's one of the older ones that we have in our in our society. Um, you know, it's hundreds of years old. This model, or at least at least over a hundred. Um, basically. The way that law school works is that there are a fixed number of prestigious law jobs for any given year of students, like only the top 10% or something get them. And the only thing that determines whether you get one of these jobs is your grades, your GPA, that's it. And the only thing that determines your GPA for a class is a single exam. One exam for every, you know, you, you take eight classes your first year. So eight exams basically determine like, or at least what you're told, determine your entire trajectory of your career. And so I... Wait, it's it's even crazier than that, yeah. right? Because to get into law school, it's basically just two scores, yeah. your GPA and LSAT score, right? Yeah. And then you just, people just sort down the rankings, Yeah. right? Yeah, yeah. But once you're, once you're there, so GPA and LSAT, that's kind of accumulated over the course of years of school and you can take the LSAT multiple times. This is like, this is eight exams, eight hours determine like your, determine your entire career trajectory. Crazy. And I went to, I mean, I went to Vanderbilt, which is 
relatively not like non-competitive by law school standards, non-cutthroat. And even then it was still very much people, you know, people were in the library super late and treated it like a, like a job or more than a job. And that was for the first time I remember it kind of, it kind of felt that you were competing in an Olympic sport or something. That was your, that was your job was to be the best at it. And I have, I was very good at it. And, um, there was, it was competitive, but it was also, there was a bit of a thrill because you were good at it. That feedback loop of validating you. And if you're, you know, you're tying up your identity and your status in something and it's reinforcing it because it is, you're, you're getting positive validation from it. And so it was, you know, kind of intoxicating, um, in a way. Yeah. What, what does that feel like? The intoxication? It's really, it was really thrilling. It was really, you, you feel like you have a purpose. It almost, it feels like you're having a purpose. Like you are, you have pride. You feel like you matter. You're worthy. Um, you are, you know, you, you rightfully have a place at the table or rightfully um, can uh, point to a credential and, and feel like you, like you belong and have some status in society almost. I love that you use thrilling. That's literally the same word I used to describe what it felt like when I landed at McKinsey. Mm, mm. It's kind of like you're you're chosen, right? Yeah. Um, and I really did like working there as well. But there was this sense of like, oh, I'm headed somewhere, right? Yeah. I'm I'm on my way. I've made it into the inner ring. Yes. Right. And yes. it's like once you like understand these secrets, there's like, but it never lasts. Right. <laughs> it never lasts. It never lasts. No, there's always, yeah, there's always some even more inner ring that you are trying to get to be a part of. Yeah. At, at McKinsey, I was sort, I got so confused there because I really liked working there and I loved my work, but everyone was leaving all the time mm. to go to business schools, law schools, mm. fancier um, NGOs to level up on social impact and mm -hmm. things like that. And it's like, well, like, what am I doing? I can't just stay. Yeah. Right? I, I think that's like the only regret of my career is like I should have just stayed there a couple more years and then just went on my own. But mm. you learn the hard way. Yeah. There was also there was also kind of a thing, at least in Wall Street, where there was this perception that only the mediocre people actually stayed and that anyone that was smart enough, you know, cunning enough, driven enough would get in and get out and move on to greener pastures that had a better work-life balance or that was a somehow more desirable game to play doing private equity or, you know, moving on in kind of the ways that you were talking about. Yeah. It's like you're a sucker, right? It's a, you're a sucker if you're not continually moving, yes. right? Yes. I think this is one of the things about the modern career world is like there's more opportunities than ever. And in the educated world of knowledge work, people are making more than ever. Mm. But there's no home. You, it's so hard to find a place and you always need to keep moving, right? Yeah. yeah. So let's go back to you. You're in law school and you decide to expand your options mm -hmm. and enroll in business school as well. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I went to law school during the Great Recession because I couldn't get an actual job when I was a senior in college. And I had no idea what a lawyer did. My dad did it. It seemed interesting. It seemed a safe route. And so I went. 
and very it's, quickly. It's the most prestigious way to 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 like not know what you're exactly, doing. Exactly. Yes. Right? That's exactly <laughs> right. That's exactly right. It's a very prestige. It's a very prestigious and expensive insurance policy, basically, to being unemployed. Um, so I got to law school and I very quickly learned what lawyers do. And I was like, oh boy, I do not want, I, I don't think I could really do this. And so, yeah, I took the GMAT. Um, I've always had a bit of like a math brain, played a lot of poker and have, and gaming and stuff. And so I did, did pretty well on the GMAT. And so, yes, I got into the business school program, I also love a good deal. And if you do the JD and the MBA, you can do it in four years, whereas it would take five if you did it separately. So, and at that point, I was all about maximizing optionality. And so that yeah. was the ultimate optionality. Were, what were you curious about while you were in school? <laughs> um, I think I suppressed a lot of my curiosities at the, uh, because they were really, Impractical. Not, impractical. They weren't employable. Like, uh, like my favorite class at law school, um, the, my two favorite ones and ones that I did the best in were criminal law and constitutional law. And there's just no, and I was fascinated by theories of justice and the background of the constitution. And none of that stuff really means much or has any value in the employment market of being a, you can't be a high paying white shoe corporate lawyer. Like, you know, arguing about the merits of the constitution or the merits of criminal justice reform or anything like that. So yeah, I was, I was really, um, I had some curiosities and I think they were just very much suppressed because they weren't really practical in, from like earning an income out of. Yeah. I, I find this so often and we'll get to you taking the sabbatical. I think that's so interesting too, because having met you, I think I met you last January or February. Mm -hmm. uh, you're one of the most curious people I know. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you. Um, does it shock you looking back that you kind of let go of that creative, curious spark? Um, in some ways, yes. I think in some ways, a lot of my creativity was channeled towards um, fulfilling my resume. So I played saxophone I played musical instrument growing up but it was it was often in order to have a good resume item to point out to be in the jazz band or to be in the orchestra or things like that and so some of the joy of that particular piece of creativity was really kind of sucked out of it and I actually didn't I totally stopped and developed an aversion towards really music and playing instruments until very, very recently. Um, I've, I've rediscovered it. Or similarly with language and speaking Spanish. I loved, loved, love, and still do love speaking Spanish. And I just um, really doubled and tripled down on it of for reasons of um, having it be a really important resume item. I minored in Spanish and it became like an academic and... Uh, resume building pursuit and I like stopped speaking Spanish for like 10 or 12 years until very recently again and yeah I've never thought of that but I think that um, the creativity I was often channeling it towards how you know I was using it very um, kind of like strategically and not just being creative to be creative that didn't compute for me that was just wasting time why would I do that 
And so I think that took some of the joy out of out of maybe the more creative pursuits that I that I enjoyed. Yeah. I imagine you also became interested in just the business world in general. I think sometimes the business world gets a bad rap. It can mm. actually be pretty interesting. Yeah. To learn about how businesses are run. Like I remember being genuinely interested. And I still get joy out of it now. I just get to spend like 20% of my time like tinkering on the business side of the, all the things I'm doing. Yes. But I don't want to do that with 100% of my time anymore. Yeah. 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 I definitely found it extremely interesting. And especially in tech and startups, um, I really found a lot of the writing there extremely, um, yeah, like extremely profound. And, and you can see that, um, how some of these like, you know, leaders and uh, th- these thought leaders and and kind of startup and tech um, icons, how they were able to change the world, whether it's, you know, Bezos and his letters or Mark Andreessen, Paul Graham, all of these people that we have um, a very rich history of their quarter by quarter or month by month thought process. It was It was really interesting to kind of see, to see how, they think and to see the the impact of, of them on on the business world and all of the problems that they were able to solve. Was there a portal into that world? A specific writer or author or any specific topic? Mm. I think when I was trying to play the finance game, I went really, really deep on Buffett, value investing, Benjamin Graham, Nassim Taleb, and Seth Klarman, like all of these hedge fund guys that would write their quarterly and annual letters. Um, and then as I got into tech, there's kind of the tech yeah. canon of blogs that you're supposed to read that I think were actually really valuable of how to build a company. Paul Graham, Sam Altman, Mark Andreessen, Keith Raboy, um, the, the, the tech, you know, the typical leaders who have kind of have, have laid out a blueprint of this is how you successfully build a company that can leverage software in the modern era. Yeah. So how did you end up in Wall Street? Basically, I, so I did first year of law school, worked for a judge, did first year of B school, worked in real estate, and then the third summer that I had was kind of make or break. It was going to be either it, that third summer determines where you work. And I was thinking about doing law, but I will, I'll never forget this. A guy in my gym, in my building in grad school was a, I was friendly with him. We were, you know, drinking buddies and he, uh, he had just completed his investment banking internship and he was just raving about it, about how much he learned and how exciting and high powered it was. And I kind of started drinking his Kool-Aid. I like attended a meeting of the investment banking club, which is so cringe to even say, but I went to that. Um, and yeah, again, it was kind of like intoxicating when everyone in that room or in that environment is achieving for something you mimetically want to get it because it is highly coveted by everyone else. And so 
I knew I knew very little about finance. I never really worked in finance, and I'd taken a couple of finance classes, but I became an expert on corporate valuation and discounted cash flows, and I took Excel modeling classes on the weekends and was trying to go from someone with zero work or life experience, really, at that point to a desirable candidate for, uh, for a Wall Street bank, and somehow I, I got there. It's funny how powerful they can be in these environments, mm. especially business school. Mm-hmm. I'm sure you had this happen where people would just suddenly show up and I think I'm going to interview for consulting. And everyone knows, including that person, that they shouldn't do it. Yes. Right. And then 10 months later, you hear from that friend, I quit. <laughs> like, I had to leave. <laughs> it was so funny. Like a year after business school, I'd say, 50% of my friends had changed jobs Wow! because people put so much emphasis on what they thought they should be doing yeah. or what they thought they wanted. And yeah. then they go are actually in the labor force yeah. and they're like, oh, I need to actually find things I want to do. Yeah. There, there was almost this like masochistic element to it of who can endure the most suffering and specifically for investment banking, you know, in that world, a yeah, lot the, of the i the bank- banking is much hard, they, much more hardcore than consulting they, recruiting. They they prided themselves, and it, it was a point of pride. They would you know often compare themselves to like parts of the military of like we are able to endure the most suffering, the most bad stuff. It's going to be you know hell on earth for you know some amount of time, but it's going to be your you know golden ticket for the rest of your life from status and a financial perspective. And that was how. It was framed and that was, and just like in, you know, the Navy SEALs, 98% of the people end up dropping out. There was a similar kind of attrition um, along the way of getting into banking. But if you stayed and got through it, it was, it was viewed as like a point of, a point of pride. Yeah. And how, how long did the glow last when you got accepted? (sighs) Um, that is a good question. So I got, I actually, my summer internship I got a job at Goldman Sachs, which was like the creme de la creme, still is the creme de la creme. And that glow lasted for some time, even into the internship. And then this this was typical of Goldman, not, not really any of the other banks, but I actually didn't get an offer to return. And that absolutely just shattered my world. I was... I was like devastated. I was like, wow, I didn't get an offer to go back. My life is over. I'm not going to be able, you know, I'm, I'm like a failure, all of these things. That was really the first time that I had put my all into trying to win a game and, and I failed. You know, that was really my first taste of like achievement uh, of a failure to achieve, achieve a goal. And it was really, really rough. What, um, what did you want to do in that moment? <sighs> Crawl under a rock. <laughs> um, yeah, I just wanted to, I mean, I was angry. I, I went back and thought about every, like, every micro decision I made throughout the entire summer, all the miniature mess ups I had and second guessed each one and was like, if I had only worked a little bit harder at this one or that one, would it have changed the outcome? And it really made me like double down on perfectionism and intolerance for any type of mistake. And I think it made me a better, a better worker in some ways, but um, it, uh, I would say what it made me do, I mean, it, it kind of made me want to prove them wrong, honestly, and show them 
that they had made a mistake and it put it put I had somewhat of a chip on my shoulder, but it put an even bigger one once I was past the kind of initial like mourning and shock of not getting the job. I didn't even consider that to be an option. It's funny. I had a similar experience, which was incredibly embarrassing in business school. So mm. I worked for McKinsey before business school. Yeah. And I think I realized what was happening now is that I was just not, my heart was not in the path, mm. right? And I was competing against all these business school people that were gung-ho. Yeah. I was competing against the Alex Hardys yeah. <laughs> after the Goldman <laughs> rejection. Good luck. And I actually did not get an offer to go back to McKinsey. Like wow. I interviewed, I thought I wouldn't, wasn't going to work there. So I yeah. interviewed on campus, got rejected. I remember where I was and I just felt like a loser. Mm. Um, mm. And all the other firms rejected me because they're like, what's wrong with this kid? Yeah, He worked at McKinsey. Why would he apply at our firm? Yes. yes. Right? <laughs> so um, from that moment, I remember like, I need to take myself seriously mm. as a person. And like, stop bullshitting, yep. like start actually communicating what I care about. Mm-hmm. And I think a lot of things opened up for me from there. But I remember that it was, it was terrible. Yeah. Um, but it was like the pers- first like poke in that like identity of like the worker. Yes. Um, but it took me like five more years to actually like think a little deeper yeah. about it. <laughs> me too. Me too. I mean, the, the, the other tough part about it was that like that whole, I had you know, getting a job at Goldman is is really for Western capitalists. That's kind of like the top of the heat yeah. for investment banking. And so I had, of course, told everyone and broadcast it and was like so proud of it and flaunting it. And I had just like this massive ta- tail between my legs moment um, where, you know, when anyone asked me about the summer or what I was going to do next, which of course is the, the question that ever, you always have with everyone. Yeah, it was, it was, that was really, really tough. Yeah. So you end up going and getting another job in banking. Yeah. Um, and how long did you spend in banking after school? So I went to Credit Suisse right after school. I got a job there and I was there for almost two years. I was there for, yeah, I think 20 months or something like that, just through the through the first bonus site. What's your favorite cycle. Excel formula? <laughs> uh, I think we had... Uh, some kind of index, an index match one that was pretty uh-huh. good. That was better than VLOOKUP. That's how you know you're hardcore. Yeah. If you know how to do that, yeah. just like off your head. Yeah. We, we weren't, we weren't allowed to use like mouses. That was like, a, that was like, <laughs> you, you were like laughed at if you used a mouse. Nice. Yeah. And so you, st- you stayed there two years. Um, yeah. When did you catch the tech startup bug? Um, so I, I, I mean, I caught the bug primarily because, well, one, I was just so miserable. I was desperate for anything else. But I remember I actually read a blog post that Packy McCormick put up. No way. Yeah. Shout out Packy. Shout out Packy. Uh, yeah, fellow Philly guy, fellow Duke guy. Um, he was very, has been very inspiring to me. Um, I was at my desk at like midnight on a Wednesday, hating life and super depressed. And I was going to be there for another few hours. And I somehow stumbled upon his post that he wrote about how he got his job at Breather after, like he he wrote, he basically blogged his whole journey. This was, I don't know, 2014 or something. This was a long time ago. Um, Before he was on Twitter, literally before he was on Twitter, before he was writing online. I don't even know how or why he published this. But um, I was like, wow, he seems... Like he has found something so much more fulfilling and he was coming from a finance background. And so I was like, okay, 
I think that there there might be something here. And that was really like the initial thread that I kept pulling. Awesome. What kept um, emerging? So I at first started trying to interview. So I was very nervous and my parents basically refused to allow me to quit Wall Street without another job lined up or they strongly discouraged me from doing it. So I was kind of, you know, desperately interviewing yeah. in every spare moment that I had. Um, I interviewed at a whole bunch of different companies. Um, I got, I, I was interviewing at, uh, at a, at that point, a small crypto company uh, that I ultimately didn't get the offer for, but um, uh, that was like Coinbase in 2015. It was Coinbase? It was Coinbase, <laughs> oh, yeah. Um, I totally bombed the, the interview, uh, even, though I had, even though I took like several days of vacation to prepare for it and flew out to San Francisco, and I just didn't understand Bitcoin at the time, which is ironic given my current interest in it. Um, but... But yeah, that was, I, I went, I was basically going full bore on trying to interview at any software company that would have me. I, um, I ultimately ended up getting an offer from a very small company that was paying me very little, even at that point. Like they were willing to start me on a, on a trial for like three months at, I don't know, 50K a year annualized or something. And that was, I had an offer. I didn't really, wasn't really excited about it. But for me, that was good enough to quit banking. I was like, okay, if I can get, if I can trick these people to hire me, you know, with, with little tech uh, bona fides whatsoever. I, my only qualifications to work in tech were I was a millennial that knew how to use a smartphone. I had no yeah. idea what any, anything about software, but it just, I felt like I could, you know, I self-taught myself corporate valuation and investment banking. I figured I could do the same for, yeah. uh, for tech. Did you tell uh, your parents? I told them. I did tell them. I think I communi- I think I was. Um, <laughs> I made it seem like it was more likely that I would take this this mediocre tech job than was was reality. Like I told them, I was like, "Yeah, I'm noodling over it. It seems really cool, really compelling opportunity. I feel good enough that I can quit Wall Street." And so they kind of like were like, "Okay, whatever." Um, that gave me the cover, I would say, that I needed for that. And what did you tell your coworkers when you decided to leave? Oh, I told them that I had found like the job of a lifetime and this incredibly compelling tech opportunity that I couldn't say no to. Why? Uh, I was extremely embarrassed at, to, pos- to not have a coherent narrative as to why I was leaving, like leaving this high-paying, high-status um job that was clearly giving them a lot of meaning. I mean, all my older coworkers who I kind of looked up to were, you know, had been there, had been in the industry for five or 10 years. Um, And so I just, the thought of trying to like explain my dissatisfaction with it and and go against the grain and rock the boat seemed totally uh, impossible. Yeah. Because successful people are always moving to something better and better and higher paying, right? Up and to the right. Yeah. The trajectory. Um, which is really interesting because a, l- a lot of these tech jobs were not the best paying in the mid and early 2010s, yeah. right? Yeah. Um, we didn't really see the flood of people flocking to tech until the late 2010s when the salaries started spiking like crazy. Yes. Um, it was still not an obvious thing uh, around 2015 to move into tech. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, when I was in B, so I was in B school in yeah 20. I graduated in 2013. 
nobody in my class worked at Google or Facebook. I mean, yeah. there were some people that went to Amazon, but those people were, were like from Seattle or something. And so it was very, the by far the high prestigious uh, opportunities were consulting and banking. Yeah, that was, it was the same for us in 2012. I yeah. think we had some friends that went to, we had some people that went to work for Zynga. Oh, um, nice. We had some like random tech employees that had yeah. made some money and were just going to business school to hang out. Yeah. But um, nobody was like trying to break into tech. Yeah, I mean, it was, it was really early in the tech days. I remember when I was in B-School, I think that was during the Facebook IPO. So they were... 2013. Yeah. yeah, and that was before they figured out their mobile strategy and the IPO was a complete disaster and they, like the pricing got all screwed up and that was like a huge thing. And a huge, it was like emblematic that tech as a whole, I would say, was was pretty immature and was not, you know, didn't have its kind of rightful place at like the prestigious capitalist table. I remember buying Facebook, um, but I didn't really have any money. So I'm not like <laughs> rich from it now, but I was like, I'm holding this. I, I still have it. Oh, nice. Um, but I remember looking around and seeing everyone addicted to Facebook. I was yeah. like, I feel like this is something yeah. there. And then like studying Warren Buffett, He's like, well, everyone's addicted to Coke, so yes. you should just buy this. And I was yes. trying to apply the same principle. Not a bad. Um, worked reason. out. I just didn't have more than like $2,000 <laughs> to put into it. Yeah. Compounding. <laughs> um, so uh, talk to me about the next step. You uh, decide you want to shift into tech. Yeah. I think you got involved with a uh, incubator type thing. Yes. So this was, so I was out of Wall Street. Um, seeing my bank account go in one direction, which was down. In New York. In New York. Not yeah. a cheap place to live. Yeah, I made the know. same stupid mistake, <laughs> quitting my job without a plan in New York. I'm like, what am I doing? So I, so I went into hyper, uh, hyper networking mode. I made a massive spreadsheet, as, an, as a recovering investment banker does. And I basically set up, I think the exact number was like 112 coffee chats over the course of two months. You did, you did all of them? Yeah, yeah, oh my God. Yeah. And this, so this is like so important. <laughs> like people do not, re people are so afraid to quit their job. But what they don't know is as soon as you step off the paycheck ladder, you will have this like force of nature fill your body to take action. Yes, yes. Right? Did that surprise you? It's, it's what I imagine parents feel. I'm not a parent, but I imagine parents feel like this when they're protecting their children or something. I, it was like this primal instinct of like, okay, I now am responsible yeah. for myself. I need to like make sure that the bread is won. Hey there, it's Paul. I just wanted to take a second and thank you for listening to the podcast. If you'd like to support more, I'd love if you'd share this podcast episode or the podcast as a whole with one other friend. Sharing it like that is the easiest way you can help me grow the podcast, get better guests, and help me continue on this long game. Next, if you're enjoying this conversation, you'd probably enjoy my book. You can check out my book, The Pathless Path, which has now sold over 40,000 copies. You can check that out on pathlesspath.com. And finally, if you're looking to find the others on unconventional paths, I've started a community the Pathless Path community, where you can find others on unconventional paths. You can check that out on pathlesspath.com slash membership. All those links you can find below and back to the episode. It's less urgent because they mostly just sleep all day. <laughs> yeah. I have a six-week-old, so. You would <laughs> but yeah. Um, yeah, so I, so I did, uh, I did, you know, made that massive spreadsheet, 
what was drinking so much coffee every day because I was going to, you know, four coffees a day, pick, <laughs> picking people's brains. So you would get a coffee at each of these chats? I mean, I would switch to decaf in the afternoon, but yeah, <laughs> I was... reasonable. Yeah, yeah. I, I wanted to fit in. Um, and yeah, I kind of, I had no real idea what I was doing. These The agenda was pretty... Um, was pretty ambiguous. It was basically like, hey, can can you help me? Or do you anyone that can help me? I'm kind of desperate looking for a job in tech. I don't really know what that means, but maybe you can help. So I learned about, I, I for some reason was focused on business development, which kind of doesn't even really mean anything. It means a million different things depending on who you ask. But I had this notion in my head that, yeah, I was a finance guy. I should do business development. That sounds cool and official. <laughs> it does sound cool. I still have no idea what business development it's, means. Yeah, I mean, I, yeah, I, 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 I couldn't really tell you. It can mean partnerships. It can mean reselling. It, it, it can mean, you know, acquisitions. It can mean a million different things. Um, so I did, I was kind of, you know, pounding the pavement for that. And people, I think, had sympathy on me and I'm likable enough. So they would like, the, the way that you would, um, I, I remember this so vividly, you're like bringing up some PTSD. The way that you would know if it was a successful meeting was if the person offered to intro you to another person. And so the only goal of the meeting, it wasn't even to get a job. It was to get the next conversation with someone else. And if the trail went dead, that means that you would kind of like messed it up and you wouldn't, uh, you know, you could you could cross them off your leads list. So you were in a coffee chat Ponzi scheme. <laughs> basically, basically. A lot, a lot of good coffee. Gregory's Coffee was a great spot in New Gre York. Gregory's uh, very good. Yeah, solid. Solid oh. cold brew. Um, but yes, so I did... The way that I got involved in the Accelerator was with Techstars. Um, I read about them in the Wall Street Journal. I read about that Techstars and Barclays was doing a fintech accelerator in New York. And the woman who ran it, Jenny Fielding. Um, hey, Jenny, if you're listening. Uh, she was interviewed in it. And so I Googled her and found her email and, and asked her for an email or asked her for a meeting. And she didn't respond. And um, then a couple weeks later, I was like, or maybe a month later, I was kind of getting pretty desperate. Funds were running low. I'd been unemployed for four or five months at this point. And so followed up and emailed her and persistence paid off. I ended up uh, meeting with her, with her, uh, you know, the person below her who ran the, ran the program, had one coffee and the final coffee chat resulted in a job offer. And I started the following Monday with the That's amazing. Yeah. So you had four or five months without work. Mm -hmm. And it, it's interesting. I think you just took what I would call a non-work sabbatical. Um, but you were unemployed and you had the freedom to do many things. Do you look back at that and you're like, wow, I really should have done X, Y, or Z or really just tried to be a little more present in the moment? Totally. Yeah. I was not, I was definitely not present at all. I was extremely high strung and filled with angst over... And caffeine. And caffeine. Yeah. <laughs> that, that probably didn't help. But I had, yeah, there was kind of like, you know, the sort of Damocles, that thing of like the king that has a, a sword hanging over his head by a by a hair. That's what it felt like. It felt like I was, you know, really, really uh, up against it with needing to find something else ASAP or else, you know, catastrophe. Yeah. So you, so you end up working at Techstart for Techstars? For Techstars. Um, yeah. And yeah. through them, you end up meeting some people that you eventually found a company with. Yes. And for the most part, this seems like this was a very positive experience for you. For sure. Yeah, it was amazing. I mean, I owe my entire, um, 
you know, break into the tech world to, to tech stars. And Jenny has been amazingly, um, an amazing mentor to me. Um, yeah, basically it was a 10 week inter- like mutual interview process where tech stars invested in these 10 companies and I was able to kind of float between each of them were, they were companies of various sizes and different, all in fintech, but various, you know, had various different needs. And I did a little bit of consulting work for each of them. I mean, it wasn't particular, I wasn't an expert really in anything. I was kind of helping with some menial stuff, but I got to, you get a vibe for someone when you're sitting in the same co-working space with them for two and a half months. And basically these two other guys, um, Andy and Pete, who later hired me and became my co-founders, um, I just loved their um, their personalities and their integrity first and foremost, and secondly, the the product that they had been hacking on was getting incredible reception by VCs and by um, and by customers. And I I sat in on all of the investor and all of the customer meetings for all the companies, and they were getting from what I could see and sitting in a hundred meetings or something, um, definitely the most traction. And I was like, okay, these guys are, seem to be onto something. So it seemed like a good risk adjusted bet to, uh, to jump in with them. Yeah. It was your goal at the time. Like I want to find my lottery ticket. Yeah. I definitely went into the program with a, um, with a goal at the end to have, assuming that there was a company there that checked enough boxes that I wanted to end up working for one. I mean, that end of the program would have been, you know, month seven of unemployment, basically. So yeah, that, that I was getting a, more and more desperate, I would say, as, as it kind of went along. Yeah, so you enter Techstars, you start working for this company, you eventually become a co-founder. Mm-hmm. Talk to me about the transformation from finance bro to tech bro. <laughs> Um, I feel like I'm a little bit of, of kind of the, um, cap, like capitalist Forrest Gump in a sense, you know, I went to law school in the mo- the year 2008 had the highest law school applications in the history of law school that year yeah. that I applied, did the law school thing, um, was doing wall street when that was super popular and the thing to do. And then I rode the tech zeitgeist, you know, at, at that point. And I think in New York at that point, the prestige and status around tech was really becoming a thing. Like New York was first, uh, was becoming, um, kind of putting its mark on the map as a tech hub. This was, there was a lot of Twitter beef between New York and San Francisco at that point of, you know, could a billion, could billion dollar companies be founded out of New York? And New York was kind of having its moment of success stories. And, you know, this was when Fred Wilson and Union Square Ventures was getting really big. They had made a lot of really big and successful investments. And New York was kind of flexing its its muscles as like a media and fintech hub, if you will. And so I feel like I just kind of embodied that and was drinking the New York Kool-Aid. It's the best city in the world. I'm a New Yorker. I'm so important. And you have this additional you know, status badge of of working in tech on the cutting edge and frontier of this life-changing, you know, technology. Yeah. And now are you feeling pulled to start an AI company? <laughs> <laughs> not on Twitter. I did tweet for the first time in like five months today, but uh, generally not on Twitter. So I don't even know what chat GPT is. Oh, you got you to try it. <laughs> I had, actually don't try it. You might get sucked in. I know, I know. <laughs> um, I've, I've entered, I think, four queries 
total ever in chat GPT. So yeah, nice. I've, I've managed to stay, stay away. The, so you're somebody that is very, um, I think curious and you collect a diverse set of mm. viewpoints, writing, mm. you're always mm. sending me interesting things. Mm. Um, Talk to me about how that was shaping your ideas. You got sucked into the ideas of like Mark Andreessen and all these people, um, Paul Graham. Mm -hmm. Um, Funny thing, I I was always reading these, but I never thought to myself I should work in tech. I was so just an oblivious Northeastern person. Um, But yeah, talk to me about like your information diet and how like the drive to like find interesting ideas. Yeah, I think... Twitter was kind of um, Twitter was um, amazing for me. Just the the density of interesting people, interesting ideas, and the fact that there was kind of always. I mean, you know, it's easy to get addicted to to the refresh button. There's always something interesting happening in your feed, and always an interesting. Um, you know, blog post or book or concept. You know, seemingly coming out. And so I think I just, I did develop, um, that was a curiosity that I would say I did follow from kind of cultivating my uh, Twitter feed well. And just, yeah, the the information diet was a lot, a lot of tech stuff, a lot of crypto stuff. And it was intellectually interesting to me, but it was also um, living and working in it felt very aligned. Like it felt like it was a productive use of my time to also follow the intellectual interest because I was working in tech. And so reading about tech all the time is kind of, you know, doubly, doubly good and important. It seems like you do a good job of also just connecting with people through the Mm, internet. mm. Um, Maybe you extended those coffee chats, but actually just reach out to people you actually want to meet. Yeah. Yeah, my mom is extremely, uh, she's amazingly social. She ran um, a business all around networking. And so it's it's literally in my DNA. And for whatever reason, I think authentically connecting with people and networking just came kind of naturally to me. And I found it pretty easy to, to um, follow basic social etiquette in circumstances, which maybe is challenging for <laughs> certain people in the, t- in the tech world. Um, so yeah, when you have uh, some intelligence paired with like a modicum of social grace, I guess it can be, uh, can be easier to endear yourself to people. But thank you for that. Yeah. And who are some of the people you were meeting early on that inspired mm. you? Um. I mean, I met David Perel very early on on um, Tech Twitter, um, and he and I have become really good friends, roommates. I was just with him before this. Um, Kehi, for sure, Rad Reads felt like a very K was a very kindred spirit of mine, and he was, you know, the older, wiser mentor who figured out that Wall Street sucked ten years before I did. And so I look, I still do look up to him a lot, but I looked up to him a lot then. Um, Tiago Forte, for sure. Um, yeah, I think those were some of the big names that come to mind of like early internet people, Taylor Pearson, Chris Sparks. Um, these were people that by and large were like living in New York, Nat, I met Nat pretty early on, um, curious, smart, hardworking people that were either in crypto or entrepreneurs or tech, but were kind of not satisfied with the, with the default path. We didn't have that word for it back then, but they were kind of 
in some way blazing their own trail. And in New York, it's really easy to just meet up with people. And I think a point that you've hit on is that these types of people are craving connection because it feels so lonely. And so I found it pretty easy to like to link up with, with those types of folks. Yeah, it's funny. I was in New York 2015 to 2017, mm. but didn't know like the other people were there. Yeah. I didn't really use Twitter at the time. I was using LinkedIn. Oh boy. <laughs> <laughs> I was actually meeting people on LinkedIn. Yeah, LinkedIn was solid was in it? 2015, 2016. Okay. I, was, I was meeting more like corporate career types, yes. but yes. there are a number of people that I'm still good friends with that yeah. I did meet through yeah. LinkedIn. Now meeting people through LinkedIn is like, I can't remember the last <laughs> time I met somebody through LinkedIn. Um, but yeah, that it seems like that early Twitter was such a magical space. And yeah. I mean, even until maybe the last like year or two, it just become kind of just insane and so much hustle posting. But um, yeah, I, I've been thinking about that. I think it's part, part of it is that the platform has changed for sure. But I think part of it is that um, for me, I think I was much more, are you familiar with the like explore versus exploit yeah, kind of framework? Sure. I think I was at that point in my career when I was kind of like aimless, friendless in many ways, I, I was casting a very wide net at the top. Um, and so I was much more open and uh, got a lot more value out of kind of saying yes to everything. Whereas as time has gone on, as my career has gone on, et cetera, I think there's a lot more value in, in kind of saying no. And there's just not as much of a need to cast that wide of a, of a top of net. Like Twitter was great when I felt lonely and like didn't have that many tech friends. Now I have many. And so there's just like a higher cost, I would say, of kind of being that unambiguously open uh, top of funnel mode. Friendless is such an interesting word because that's exactly how I felt after I left my job, which seems weird. I yeah. had friends, but I didn't feel, I felt like I was on an island. Yeah. And you're sort of desperate for people that are seeing the world in a new way. Yeah. Like, why do you think it's like this when you shift identities? And do you think this is kind of what drives the fear of changing identities? Yeah. I mean, I think it's like it in that work is in just modern society is the water that we swim in. It's how you define yourself. And when you're on something that's easily legible to your peer group, it is, there's no, you know, it's, it speaks for itself. If you tell someone I work at McKinsey or I work on Wall Street, it, it, there's a whole set of assumptions, values, status, et cetera, that is communicated along with it that I think just makes it, um, you you fit you feel like you fit in a lot easier. Whereas if you're on one of these less conventional paths where you have to like explain to someone what your no-name startup does or what or or God forbid that you don't have a job and that you're still exploring it, these things just don't compute in a lot of times with those people. And so the conversation can kind of die. You know, when you're if you meet if one, you know, if one iBanker meets another iBanker, they can talk to each other for like eight hours about stuff that would be so boring to any other pe person. But when you explain like, oh yeah, I'm, you know, in business development at this no-name startup that works on cloud hosting, the conversation just like dies to most normies. And so that can also feel very lonely. I've said that on the default path, people sort by income. Mm. And on the pathless path, they sort by interest. Mm. And I think more and the more of the world is actually becoming like this. Yeah. And I think this is why the internet is so powerful to find the people actually interested. Yeah. And 
I think even just a handful of people can change everything. Yeah. Because yeah. if you're comfortable talking about things you're actually interested in, um, you feel safe, you feel connected, and you can take chances yes. on things that feel silly. I think moving to Austin has been this for me, mm. even though I've been on a path for like this for years. It's even more helpful to find people that are literally just like physically <laughs> in the room with me yeah. that like don't laugh at what I'm doing. Yeah. Like hosting a podcast, people still laugh at this. Wow, really? Not in Austin. Not in Austin. No, <laughs> this is like where because it's where we all come. Yeah. <laughs> but um, I mean, the New York Times publishes a piece like every six months. That's like, how are so many people still starting podcasts? People yeah. should have credentials to do this, and yeah. like most people just think it's weird. Yeah. Um, yeah. So it's so powerful to have um, those people that just don't laugh. Yeah. Right when you're trying something interesting, and I think the tech world has been that for many people. Mm-hmm. Although now it's sort of just becoming the corporate world. Yeah, um, I saw Google is like limiting the number of staplers oh my people are having, which is like they're just like IBM or GE now. Yeah, it's the same thing. Yeah, yeah, it's another putting, big company. Putting <laughs> yeah, putting a, a nice like glossier finishing coat of paint on it. But yeah, it's the same thing. So. Um, the goal for you, the mountain you were climbing in tech was the exit? Was that the goal? Uh, yeah, that's, yeah, that was, that was the, that's the final chapter of the hero's journey in, in tech, I would say. And th- that's somewhat useful because it's a long journey, yeah. right? And you, it seems like you did enjoy it too, right? Yeah, for so sure. So it's kind of a useful goal to aim at. It's not like you arrived there and then it's super quick and then you have to find the next thing. Yes. Yeah. Um, at least if there is an exit of sizable proportions, uh-huh. it might buy you some time to reflect. Uh-huh. Yeah. <laughs> this socially acceptable script. <laughs> yes. Um, so, yeah, I mean, talk to me about that. Um, I know it was kind of a rocky road toward the end of 2019 and mm-hmm. into the pandemic when yeah. you guys were finally approaching that exit. Yeah. Yeah, so we had been building for about, uh, over five years, um, and we were the company was in was in video conferencing, secure video conferencing, and um, twenty twenty was a good time to be in the video conferencing business, as I think we all know. I mean, when we started, to give you an idea, we started when the company was started. Nobody used Zoom. No, no, no corporate no corporation used Zoom. Yeah. Everyone used twenty fifteen. Yeah. They used yeah. WebEx and so bad. that was that was probably it. I'm trying to think. There was some go to meeting here or there. I kind of had to memorize that whole landscape at some point, but um I've I've blocked it out. Um but yeah, so this was like way before Zoom was a thing, way before um big uh companies were comfortable with like the cloud moving into the cloud was still kind of um, you know, taboo. Uh, so a lot to change over that time. And 2020 was just the perfect storm, if you will, of, um, of video, you know, being like going from a nice to have to an absolutely must have. You cannot get business done without a a video solution because people were not allowed to meet in person. And so beginning of 2020 was, um, the, we started, uh, having, you know, dialogue with DocuSign, who is the company that eventually bought us. But um, yeah, there was a very open question of, do we, we ended up getting an acquisition offer from them. And the question was, do we go with DocuSign, which, which has, you know, this specific 
monetary value, certainty, kind of um, is a good story, obviously. Or do we go it alone, raise some more money, maybe try and grow the business 10x or something and, you know, aim for more of like a grand slam outcome. And at that point in the world, nobody knew it was going to happen with the, with the pandemic. We didn't know if people, I mean, this was, we're talking like April, 2020. We didn't know if anyone was ever going to be allowed to meet in a physical location, like ever again. That was, you know, people were talking about the, the permanence of this remote thing. Is this the new way of life? So there was a lot of uncertainty there. And yeah, we kind of did our, our best to uh, make an assessment. We ultimately ended up choosing to sell the company, which I think in hindsight was the right move. But um, yeah, it was uh, things that now look obvious in hindsight. There was a lot of uncertainty and, and chaos, I would say, um, in our decision making at the time. And how did it feel when you signed? Um, very anticlimactic. Uh, I mean, it felt good in a sense, in the sense of like going to your bank account when you receive like a nice your IRS tax refund or something feels nice. But um, we were we were this was still peak lockdown, so yeah. none of us were allowed to meet in person when we signed. I think we signed in sometime in May or June, and. I was like alone in my apartment when we, when the, at like midnight, when the lawyers officially signed. And there was, you know, in Wall Street, interestingly, uh, anytime a deal closes, you go to like a closing dinner, there's all of this fanfare. You go out to nightclubs and you spend thousands, you waste thousands of, you know, company dollars on this um, or the bank's dollars. But with this, it was just me sitting alone in my, apartment without having had like human contact in several days because of pandemic lockdown. And uh, yeah, it felt, it felt um, a bit like, huh, is this really <laughs> as good as it gets? This is like supposedly a peak experience, peak moment in my life. And I'm just like sitting here alone, feeling the exact same. Nothing has changed. Have you celebrated it? We did, we did a closing dinner uh, a year later with all the investors and the execs and everything. Um, and that was a little weird, but definitely felt like more appropriate. So, yes. Yeah. And you kept working at the company too, right? Mm -hmm. And this is pretty normal. Um, I mean, not always, but sometimes the companies have the lead people come onto the company and there's a certain earnout period, yes. right? Yeah. Um, so you ended up staying two years? Two and a half. Two and a half years. And so I met you about a year into that. Yeah. And the, the first time we talked, like I had been writing about leaving your job and taking yeah. breaks. It was very clear to me you were leaving. <laughs> it was only a question of like how long that would take. I remember yeah. talking with uh, my wife, Angie, yeah. and it's like, oh, Alex is going to leave. <laughs> <laughs> like the whole last year was just like, well, when is he going to leave? He'll yeah. say he's gonna, he thinks it's going to happen now. And then your job got easier and you started staying mm -hmm, longer. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. So it was very, very fun for me to watch from the yeah. sidelines. Um, <laughs> I mean, not at your expense or anything, yeah. but um, just kind of validated a lot of the things I'd been writing about, about like what people are craving deep down. Mm -hmm. um, talk to me about that like deeper pull. So I, it, the, the first year, so I was there for two and a half years. The first year after the acquisition, we had very, um, very high like sales targets and other targets that we were trying to hit. And there was a lot of financial incentive for us to do it, a lot of money tied to that. And so we were 
grinding really, really hard. And we ultimately didn't end up hitting them, which is its own separate thing, um, which caused a lot of consternation and uh, dissatisfaction. But once that carrot was gone, the job got to be like very easy, very enjoyable. I was like, oh, this is why people like working at a big tech company so much. <laughs> like, it's not that hard. I mean, it's, you know, you're, 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 you're working, but it's primarily just like Zoom meetings, status check-ins, things move at an infinitely slower pace than they do in the startup world. Like what's measured in, what needs to be measured in days at a startup is measured in quarters at a, at a public tech company. And so I was kind of like, well, this is like pretty easy and pretty um, frictionless to enjoy. And so I just kind of coasted uh, into it. And it was, it was really nice. I tra was traveling a lot last summer and was kind of had just the best work-life balance of, that I've ever had in, in my life. Um, and so it was easy to, um, yeah, it was easy to kind of like, relax into that and feel wanting to want want to soak it up for a little bit but what um i definitely felt that i was not aligned with my sole purpose to the extent that such a thing exists it felt like i was wearing my capitalist mask by day and my spiritual mask at night there's this there was this whole spiritual exploration that i had been doing for the last eight or nine years and it felt like what i was doing for the eight or four or two hours in a, in a working day uh, was very divorced from that. It was very, it was just, there was just no relation whatsoever. I, it was like, you know, a very, very rigid kind of line drawn in be in between the two. And so there was that nagging sense of like disharmony or that I was not being kind of authentic, but I was getting paid really well. It was really easy. It was frictionless. It allowed me to enjoy other parts of my life. So I was kind of content with it. Um, and then they did a massive round of layoffs and everyone, there were five of us at my level in a single day. The other four people were fired. And so here I am just inheriting the job, responsibility, team, all of it of the other four people um, two of whom were my co-founders, two of whom were people that I'd worked with for, you know, five years. And so there was that emotional toll and also just the practical toll of like, you know, imagine that um, so a, a peer colleague of yours is let go and in a single day, basically all of their email project deliverables to do's are just getting totally redirected to you. You're the the new kind of like lightning rod for literally any question in the company related to this. And that was very, very... Uh, painful to deal with, shall we say. Yeah. And slight detour here. Yeah. So I know uh, Andrew Taggart is somebody that has influenced yes. me and you both. Yes. Um, I think his his writing about work is very powerful, mm -hmm. right? He identifies this idea of total work mm -hmm. as work is like the soup we are in, right? This is yes. water in the David yes. Foster Wallace sense. And like, yes. once you realize this, right? It's hard to unsee that. Yeah. Um, how was this sort of influencing how you were thinking of yourself? Like, do you think um, his ideas and like, oh, maybe I'll just like do these two hours. It's still worth it. Like, how were his ideas kind of playing with your experience of that? Yeah. I mean, he's been really influential on me. Um, I work with him 
Um, no pun intended. I philosophize with him. He's he's a, a huge spiritual mentor of mine. Um, I think that I was very, um, I was clearly seeing uh, where in my life I was over-identifying as a worker. And I think where, what he, so that was definitely something to pay attention to. But I think what he, um, maybe like the point of balance that he would emphasize is that, you know, you shouldn't tie up your entire identity in work, but you also should, you don't need to like totally eschew it and say, I hate capitalism and I'm just going to go live in the woods. Like work is kind of a necessary, uh, can be like earning income and providing for yourself can be a fine and necessary part of life. Just like doing the dishes or showering or something can be, it's just not something to take so seriously. That was, that I think is really his message. And I was taking myself so seriously as a total worker that it was everything that I was doing. And I had this kind of nagging feeling that I really wanted to see what it was like to exist in the world with my identity not wrapped up in, in work. Yeah, I think one of his ebooks, How an Artist Can Hack a Living. Have you read this one? I haven't. Uh-uh. Um, read it in 2018. It was just like on his site. And it was very much about the relationship to work. Mm. So how do you show up to work with a lightness, mm. right? a playfulness, yeah. a genera- generous spirit, like yeah. a right relationship to work? Like how do you turn down money if it doesn't feel right? Mm-hmm. right? Been super powerful and useful for me. Um, but... When I first read his ideas, I sort of realized I need a period of time where I'm not actively still in the machine on the default path. Even if you're not working, you might still be on the default path because Mm. of how you're thinking about, I need that next thing, that next. You're sort of like in the grind and it's a different lived experience to disconnect from that. Yes. Yes. Um, It seems like that's what you were being pulled toward. Yes. Yeah, I think to rewind to the New York experience post-investment banking before tech, even though I wasn't working, I was very much in a total work mindset. I mean, that spreadsheet and how I was treating my day-to-day lived experience was like I was treating it like a job. You know, like I need to total get, total coffee. Total, total coffee, work coffee. Total caffeine. Yeah, caffeine caffeine maxing. Um but yeah, I I felt um I mean in many ways the pain, the challenges that I endured towards the end of the time at DocuSign was a huge blessing because it like, I mean, things got so challenging that it really for it forced the issue. It was kind of like a, you know, coasting is fine, but um, sometimes you kind of need that crucible to make things so difficult that it forces you to to leave and to to seek seek something else. But you wanted them to make the decision for you. <laughs> yeah, I'm a people pleaser. So uh, I I have trouble saying no and disappointing people and setting boundaries. And so, um, yes, I, um, I, wa- I wanted to be able to leave guilt-free. Um, and so I had voiced my concern about the new amount of work that I had to take on, that I was doing five people's jobs and not getting paid anymore for it. And they said, oh, Alex, you're so valuable. We, we you know, really want to keep you. We'll reduce your scope and we'll pay you more money. 
I was like, okay, I'll hear them out. And they came back to me with a, with an offer for more money. And it was okay, but it didn't feel like it was worth the, the, you know, the mental cost that I was enduring of working, doing five people's jobs. So I was going to quit. And then this little nagging voice in the back of my head was like, well, if you're going to quit anyway, why not make them a Hail Mary offer that they'll never say yes to? And that way they can be the ones that disappoint you instead of you having to disappoint them. So I went back to them and I countered with triple the offer that they had offered me. I somehow arrived that that would be, you know, the price that I thought was worthy to sell my soul for a year. If they, if they said yes, I thought there was zero chance. They said yes. I thought I was going to get laughed out of the room. I bring it up to the, my boss's boss and he's like, okay, sound, sounds reasonable. Um, I'll, see, I'll see what I can do with it. I was like, oh boy. Um, so he takes it to his boss, takes it to their boss. It gets escalated to the number two person at the company. And this is over the course of a week or two. And I remember, I remember talking to you during yeah. this time and you were extremely stressed. Yes. This is what, yeah. And I was like, I was talking with Angie again. I'm like, Alex, definitely leaving. It doesn't <laughs> matter how big this number is. Like the bigger, big. the, like the bigger the number, it almost makes it easier yeah. because then it realizes you're just trading something that means a lot to you for yeah. money. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. It felt, um, I mean, it was going to be like over a million dollars worth of, of, of value. Um, and over the course of these, of this week or two, I just remember every day waking up with this pit in my stomach being like, I really hope they say no. I really hope they just reject me. I don't want to have to sign up for this for another year. And it felt, I mean, it felt very much like I was selling my soul, um, for, for some amount of money. It felt very transactional and yeah, just like, like a sellout move. And so, um, ultimately I got word that this number two woman was supportive of it and that they just needed to have one final interview to finalize it. And I was like, Oh God. Um, so this was the old, this was the, the universe testing me. Like, do you, you know, how much do you really value your independence and mission and soul purpose? And basically I went back to them and said, I, I really appreciate it that you're going to, you know, meet me on all my terms, but this is just, not aligned for me and I um I can't I can't do it it's just not uh not not in my future I appreciate it all but um I'm leaving and I think this is one of the challenges with a success or achievement driven path is mm. you will literally always be offered more and more money yeah and more and more opportunity yeah and nobody ever sits down and sets a price <laughs> for their like non-working time I actually have like created a price. My oh. price per hour is a million dollars per hour <laughs> of like my leisure time. Um, I sort of just mentally do this as an exercise of yeah. like reminding myself that is it is expensive to give up my yeah. time. Yeah. Um, so you end up leaving and you end up uh, basically creating like a mini sabbatical for yourself yes. in Costa Rica. Yes. Um, um, what did you miss price? Mm. I think if I knew how alive this sabbatical has made me feel, I would have left much sooner. I would have done it much sooner. How um, much sooner? Probably 
like right after the company had sold, I would say. Um, yeah. yeah, I think, I think that for me, it was important for me to, to climb that mountain, that startup mountain and get the win and have that experience. But yeah, I feel like, I mean, there was, I was almost, I mean, just being in Costa Rica for two weeks, I was like, oh my God, I can't believe that I've put this off for this long, this reconnecting with myself, this living a simpler life, this stopping to be a worker and just being and existing and waking up with no set schedule and waking up and just being able to follow activities and curiosities that I want to do or some days doing nothing and some days just taking a nap at like 11 a.m. and having no agenda, no schedule, not having to perform anymore. And we treat taking these breaks as such an unreasonable thing Yeah. in adulthood. Yeah. But like the way I frame it is if that was the most important thing in life, like a lot of people buy really expensive houses and they decide that is the most expensive thing in life, yeah. right? And then they orient their entire life to make that happen. A lot of people pull this off every year, right? If we treated this space in our lives as the most important thing and just created three months in our adulthood, yeah. I think most people could do it. Yeah. Like, but sell it for me. Like, why is this so powerful? I mean, for me, it allowed me to just reconnect deeply with my emotions, with the with my sense of play, with, you know, things from my childhood that brought me joy that I had just totally forgotten about, like yoga and singing. And just, I was able to capture this, um, yeah, this like childlike sense of joy on a day-to-day basis that it was the happiest I've been in my adult life by far. Um, for And not for any particular activity. There was, it wasn't like I was, you know, doing some kind of extravagant, living some kind of extravagant life. I was waking up, doing yoga, watching and watching the sunset. Those were like my three main activities that I was engaging in. But it was just, it just felt so liberating that, um, yeah, that it was it was very special. Yeah, I, I've experienced a very similar thing on this path. And it it sort of shakes your understanding of everything. Yeah. Right. I look back on my path now and people will say to me, Well, you did all these things to get to this point. And you're like, knowing what I know now, like the these feelings are so powerful. And the more I've read, you find them throughout all of history different cultures, different religions. Yeah. Everyone writes about these aliveness feelings, yeah. right? Like yoga is a like practice mm-hmm. to arrive at many of these feelings, mm-hmm. but nobody believes it. Yeah, you're, um, for me, it felt like I was like in my worker mode, I was kind of like peering through like a very narrow keyhole as to what experience and living a good life and all of these things could be. And then when you kind of remove the shackling or the scaffolding of the work nine to five, you know, way of being in the world, you just start to have this vast opening and expansion into the possibilities. The possibilities are literally endless and limitless of how you can construct a day and how you can spend your time. Are you less stressed about finding work worth doing now than before you left? Um, yeah, much, much so. Um, I think my bar is higher as well for who, what types of people and companies that I want to work with. I mean, I was, I had to give myself a rule to like not do anything, to not try and start another company or to not start, go back into worker mode for two months. I made my, I forced myself to not 
like write anything down, not take notes, not take meetings, not do any of that. I didn't do a Zoom call for like two and a half months. It was amazing. Um, and I've slowly started to dip my toe back in the water, but I've had a very high bar and intentionally, I'm, I'm almost like anti-marketing myself when I'm talking to people that I might potentially work with. I'm prefacing myself as I don't want to work very much. I'm, I'm going to be extremely expensive. I'm going to be extremely concierge. I'm not looking for something full time. And I want to work with people that I actually enjoy. And that's like a good enough filter. And the people that can get through that, I, I'm happy to work with. But setting that filter very high up front has been, uh, has been nice. You sound like me in 2018. <laughs> we, we would have gotten a long way. Yeah. Basically, just like code for I don't want to work right now and I want yeah. to lean into this. Yeah. Talk to me about the American mind. Mm. <laughs> I think a big shift for me was moving to Taiwan and mm. realizing I had an American mind. Yeah. I thought I was like more chill than people yeah. and more relaxed, taking my career less seriously. Yeah. Arrive in Taiwan. Oh my gosh. <laughs> I had a lot of American wiring I didn't realize. Yeah. In Costa Rica, I think I had conversations about my job and what I did for a living maybe three times in three and a half months, something like that. It just, ne the question, what do you do or what is your job or any of that? It just never comes up in any kind of, you know, casual conversation. So that was definitely a big one. I think also the kind of um, needing to cram as much stuff into as little of a time as possible. Like this kind of like relaxation via checklist or something is very, very American. And in, in Costa Rica and in other places too, there's just a lot more ease and flow and chaos in a good way. And not this order orderliness of having to like do a certain amount of stuff. Things are just slower, more relaxed. There's less of a an edge, you know, a needing to be on edge or like performing, I would say. If it rains, you stop working. Internet goes out. What are you <laughs> going to do? <laughs> exactly. So talk to me about some of the forgotten childhood hobbies. I know you got mm. into music, yeah. uh, singing. Um, do you now see those as like fundamental and important elements of like what a bundle of activities you want to be doing in the future? Yeah, definitely. I think the way I've thought about it is instead of having these things. So in, in law school, one of my favorite teachers, like ha, had this metaphor of there's like, you can have like, you picture like a big jug and you can have, if you're trying to fill the jug, you can put in like boulders and then you can put in sand and then you can put in water. And like the boulders should be the most important thing because they take up the most amount of space. And that's like your family, your parents, your kids, et cetera, your job maybe. And then the sand is like the stuff that is important and nice to have, but just kind of fits in between the boulders where you can, which is like maybe, I don't know, friendship or something. And then water is the stuff that's like not that important. It just fills in all the final cracks. And that's like hobbies or these childlike pursuits that bring you joy. And so I think the American conception of that is your boulders are your job, and the sand is maybe your yeah. friendship and the water is like some of your hobbies or some of these things that don't have any economic value. And I feel like I've just totally flipped that on its, on its, on its face. Like there, I will. I, I think the American would be to get a second jar. Yeah. <laughs> right. <laughs> yeah. And fill it with your side boulders. Yes. Yes, exactly. <laughs> so I think for me, um, whereas old Alex would 
gladly forsake doing yoga or doing, you know, playing instruments in order to hit up his boulders of, of a job. I think now it's the exact reverse. Like yoga is my boulder or, you know, do it, you know, playing the, I've been taking harmonium lessons. And so playing the harmonium and doing mantra chanting, uh, is, is something that I'm not willing to compromise on or meditation. Um, and the other stuff, the job stuff can fall is the water now that's filling between the cracks. That's a big thing where I differ from a lot of people. I kind of have this phrase called the work worth doing, Mm. right? The real work of your life. Mm. And I think the American conception is like this silly Ikigai chart that is basically made up. (laughs) Um, It's like work you can get paid for, right? But I think the work worth doing, the stuff that feeds our soul, we can't actually expect to get paid for that. But we also need to be crazy enough. And it's not even crazy. It's really just having faith um, that leaning into these things is what gives our life richness. Yeah. Does that resonate with you? Yeah. Yeah, for sure. I think, yeah, I've never been much of a fan of that icky guy chart because I think it puts work on too much of a pedestal, honestly. That's my main, you know. It's, it's um, hopes and prayers yeah. in a chart. Yeah. It's like, I hope the economy aligns with my yeah. interests. Yeah. I mean, my I guess where I'm at now is like, capitalism is fine, but why would I give my most precious gifts to it? You know? Yeah. It's just, it's an emergent set of conditions, incentives, and like a current state that exists. Right. Mm -hmm. And I think people think there's some like group in charge of like the capitalism. No, it's (laughs) just changing and like world economic forum. (laughs) Um, and I think for us, both of us have benefited from being very analytical people who do like connecting with other people. And that has benefited us with the current economic paradigm. Yeah. But if we grew up in a more agrarian era, maybe we would have sucked. <laughs> like, I think I would have been a good farmer. I don't know. I don't know <laughs> if I would have been. <laughs> but yeah, it's uh, it's really hard, right? And it can be extremely frustrating too because most people do just sort of seed purpose to the capitalistic machine. Yeah. Um, why is um, Jocko Willink, like uh, Jocko Willink's speeches why are they close to Vedantic texts? Oh, yeah. So in, in Costa Rica, I got, I was, I was really, I got, I was like going very deep down this like spiritual rabbit hole, but also very into the Navy SEALs and like David Goggins and Jocko stuff. And I was, couldn't really figure out why those two things were resonating for me, but they really were. And I think they both have this love for, the present moment, exactly how it is and a reverence for it. And Jocko has this famous quote, I think it's called good, where he basically talks about, he goes down this long list of things that go wrong. The mission gets screwed up, your weapons jam, the weather sucks. And after each one, he says, good, good. And it's basically like this, um, you know, amor fati, if you will, of loving the present moment that things are, perfect exactly as they are because they teach you something and each you know each present moment is a chance to get better and improved and i would say you know wisdom eastern wisdom traditions have a similar love and reverence for the present moment like there are no problems there there's only a problem if there's an ego that's that's really like a very bumper sticker way of boiling down a lot of these wisdom traditions that there is no such thing as a problem. It's just your interpretation of it. 
because you you are an ego or you have an ego, like sickness or a death in the family or anything that we give this negative valence to is not actually bad. There is no, there there is no, it's not possible for anything to be bad. Each moment is just happening. There's no good. There is no bad. It's, it's, that's non-duality in a nutshell. Yeah. And I always think one of the challenges with people like Jocko and David Goggins, like I agree with you, there's yeah. something deeper um, with both of them. And I think they're misunderstood. I think the challenges, they often communicate in this like sort of American hustle language yeah. that then gets co-opted by very similar people yeah. that don't have that deeper pull. Yeah. Right. And I often say like, it's hard to figure out who to follow because a lot of people are communicating in this hustle language and really like these people just need to read more poetry and literature <laughs> to like, like that. use different language to communicate what they're saying. Yeah. Um, but you can see it once you've had these experiences. Mm -hmm. You've had this now, you, these many experiences, these shifting experiences, and you can see these people and you can sort of see, oh, they've had this shift too. Yeah. They're looking yeah. at things in this deeper game. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. And what's the deeper game for you now? Um, I'm going to dispute the premise a little and say that. Oh, I'm, perfect. Yeah, I, I didn't love the question. I'm either. focused on more being and less planning, more yeah. uh, less doing and just more flowing. Like it feels like things have really been flowing since being in Costa Rica. And I think a lot of that has been a um, resistance to thinking too far ahead. And, you know, my parents and my friends and all of these people always ask me, oh, what's next? What are you, what's the next company you're going to do? What's the next job you're going to do? What, what's your, what's your five-year plan? And I just say, I don't know. And I'm getting more and more comfortable saying that. And it's been very fun to see people's brains kind of break when you say that, because that's not an answer they're used to hearing all the time. But I am, uh, I mean, what's next is that I'm cultivating a trust that, when I jump, the universe will provide the net. Yeah, I think we get tied to these abstract notions of doing, right? Yeah. We need to be doing X with a label, with an identity. I've really detached from a lot of that and really been trying to focus on like people and place. Mm. So like, what is the environment? Yeah. Um, how can we put ourselves in an environment where we can sort of cultivate the things we want mm. in life? I think this is how we ended up in Austin. Um, I think you leaving the U.S., that's really opened up this like curiosity around like, okay, what other places can I kind of lean into that unknown, that uncertainty? Is that kind of what's driving you right now? Yeah, I'm in my, I'm in my eat, pray, love season for sure. Um, I, I loved living in Costa Rica. I loved speaking Spanish. It was, and I just loved the whole getting out of kind of the American matrix. It was very much a rewiring uh, of, of my brain in the best possible way. And I'm feeling called in some some ways inspired by you to uh, to go to Bali. So that is the next stop on, uh, on the world tour. I'm going to be doing a yoga teacher training there. Uh, cliche as it might sound, but I'm really, really excited for it. Um, and yeah, that's, that's, uh, that's the next, the next stop that I'm, that I'm really excited about. I love that. And yeah, I, I think uh, I've really appreciated just how present you are. And like, thank you. I can see the like, I call it the post-work glow mm, after your uh, mm. sabbatical, but I'm really excited about your journey right now. And you don't really have stuff to like hype. Um, but uh, if people did want to like reach out and connect with you, I think you're 
you're open to that. Yes. Where can people find you? I've been I've been on a bit of a Twitter sabbatical, although I did post today. I may get back into it. Um, I am on Twitter and Instagram at Can't Hardy Wait, like the movie Can't Hardly Wait, although many people, most Gen Zers haven't seen it, so that may not resonate, but Can't Hardy Wait on Twitter and Instagram. My Instagram has gotten a lot more like artsy. You were talking about poetry before. I've been on a kick of like posting random poetry, which has been kind of fun and interesting to see how that resonates with people. But yeah, those are, uh, that's where you can find me. It's amazing. Thank yeah. you for this conversation. Amazing. Flew by. Thank you, Paul. Thank you for listening to The Pathless Path. I love having these conversations. And if you want to support me, you can rate, review, or subscribe on your favorite podcast app. You can also follow me on YouTube, where I post all the video interviews of this podcast as well. Finally, you can always support me by buying my book, The Pathless Path. It's a book I'm really proud of and has most of my best thinking and probably my best writing in it. And you can get it for less than 20 bucks. So grab that. It's in the show notes. And thank you for listening.